Welcome to All Along the Wasatch, a public affairs program produced by Bonneville Salt Lake City. If you would like to submit a request to be on the show, please email mparsons at ksl.com. Now, here's the host of All Along the Wasatch, Mike Parsons. Welcome to the show. It is September 11th, 21 years since that horrible day when our country was attacked. And I thought for today's show, we would talk to some 9-11 survivors, a couple of people. Sonia Agron is a former EMT, happened to be in Lower Manhattan that morning. Her husband, Joe, is an NYPD police officer. We'll talk to her in just a moment. Later, we'll talk to Bill Romaka. He is currently the World Trade Center Health and Compensation Outreach Coordinator at a law firm that helps survivors and victims of 9-11. Uh, back on 9-11, he was a New York City firefighter. We'll talk to him coming up. But first, Sonia. And let me make sure I've got this right, Sonia. You both worked on the pile after the attacks. Is that correct? He was there that day and uh, for a few weeks after that, and I came a few weeks after that with the Red Cross. So you and your husband, both pretty much first responders, and you decided to work there. Uh, yep. how, how long did the two of you work on the pile? Well, wow. He worked the first um, month or two. He was assigned there by his Bronx unit, and then he went after that um, every other week. Um, And then I was there until January, first week of January. Couldn't take more after that. It was too hard. And let's back up to that morning. And the whole reason I wanted to talk to you and our other guest, Bill, today was we said after 9-11 that we would always remember, we would never forget. And I feel like we might be as a country. Last year was kind of a big deal with it being the 20th anniversary. And that's why I wanted to talk to a couple of people that were there to not only talk about what happened that day, but also to talk about how it's affected your life since. And I'm sure it's a story you've told thousands of times, but if you'll indulge us and tell us one more time, just you and your husband and your experience that morning. Um, it's, it's always important to tell the story no matter how many times we're asked because that's how we remember. Um, that morning was his birthday. He um, was going to work later on in the evening. I went into Manhattan. He took our daughter to school. Um, he turned on the TV and he heard about the first plane, but it hadn't been confirmed that it was terrorism. However, he was here for 1993. And when he came home the next day, very sadly, he said, they're not done. They'll be back. So Mm -hmm. when he hears the news, he goes to pick up our daughter. Now, I don't know any of this. I'm already in midtown Manhattan. Um, He goes to pick up our daughter. He drops her off. Um, I have no idea what's going on. I receive a phone call um, after I'm evacuated from midtown. And suddenly he's talking very differently to me. And he said, listen to me carefully we're under attack we are at war stay away from the trains get on the next bus out and then we got cut off Mm. so i had no idea what he was talking about until i saw the fighter jets and i knew we were in trouble but the city had shut down by then and i knew for some reason it hit me that if i started to walk home um i would be passing by churches synagogues schools of the tall buildings and i didn't know um, if they were going to continue to attack us. So I found a hotel. I still didn't quite get what he was telling me, though. Um, and as I'm sitting down, I find a seat. I watch the television, and that's when I hear about the Pentagon and Shanksville. Mm. And I know now, all these years later, that it was the South Tower that went down, I believe. Um, actually, no, it was the North Tower because it was at 1028. And when I saw that... 
I had to be mindful of the fact that I was probably the only New Yorker in that hotel. The rest of the people were tourists, and I just could not afford to lose it at that moment. Mm. Um, it was confirmed that the city had shut down, so I stayed put trying to figure out what I should do next. And hours later, the um, there was a little scroll at the bottom of the TV, and it said the mayor was opening up the city. Um, I would not take a train. I have not taken a train in 21 years. But I found a cab. Uh, I had to figure out what to do about my daughter. Did not know she was home, and she was home. And then my husband did call about five. Um, his voice was so different. I've answered jobs with my husband when I was on NEMS, and this was not my husband talking. He was describing things that were just, I, I just couldn't conceive of it. And then he said he was taking a break at 10, and he was um, near Tower 7. And we, I, I want to say we were happy, but there was really nothing to be happy about. We were just relieved that now we knew for sure that Daddy wasn't gone. I'm sure that was a, a very long day waiting to hear from him. Oh, gosh. Um, it was the longest day, but when he said he was going to call us at 10, that was the longest. Mm. So we had to wait from the time he called until 10. The problem was that in between that, we saw Tower 7 go down, and um, that's where he said he was, in the vicinity. And so when he didn't call, we kind of assumed the worst. And um, my, my, I felt, the, at one point, I felt it was unfair that we got to say, I love you. We got to say, you know, happy birthday, and then he's gone. And then I can't really explain it, but then I realized that I had received a very good blessing because there were thousands of people that were never going to get that last call, and we did, and we were going to hold on to it. But he, he didn't call, and it's daylight, and I um, I went to my room and I got dressed because I figured the NYPD would, call, would knock on my door to tell me that he was gone, and instead he walked in, and that was not the man I said goodbye to the day before. I don't know how many people would understand this because sometimes it feels selfish. But my husband didn't come back. His heart, his mind stayed at ground zero. And the guy that came back was just a shell of the man I kissed goodbye the day before. And on his birthday. Yeah, so it's kind of hard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 21 years, we can't, um, he refuses, number one, to celebrate his birthday. Um, he wants to be alone. And I've respected that, so I go to the memorial to volunteer. Um, not uh, just because he made it and because so many of his voices were taken away, but they didn't take mine. And I will do whatever I need to do to keep the 9-11 story alive. And we appreciate that. And that's exactly why we're talking to you this morning. Now, I didn't know that there are a couple of different 9-11 museums just blocks from each other. Could you kind of describe what the difference is between the two? Yes. Today, um, well, today we finally finished closing the 9-11 Tribute Museum. Um, it was next to 1010 House before we moved to Greenwich. It was the first 9-11 Memorial Museum started by the September 11th Families Association. And they had only one criteria, that those who volunteer there had to have a direct connection to 9-11. So we have first responders, recovery workers, family members, survivors, and residents who were directly affected. And we tell our stories. We do talks on the memorial. Um, and um, I had gone as far as Japan to tell my story, Alaska. Um, and uh, the whole purpose was that we began, we had to heal. And in order for us to heal, we had to share our stories. Um, 
that was the only way. And not everybody can do that. And those of us who could did. Um, and um, then you have the National Museum, the Memorial Museum, and that's a more fact-based in terms of artifacts. Um, what I do there is I interpret uh, the facts, artifacts for people, visitors that come in to ask questions. They want to know what this or that is about. So it's very different mm-hmm. where the tribute was personal. This is more factual. And it does do a beautiful job of telling the stories um, of that day, the timeline. The tribute, you're hearing it from people that were there. And you're hearing it from people that are sick. Um, many times you've heard it from people that were sick and that have now died because of toxins that we breathe in. And for me, I have to continue. Um, I, I'm, I'm sick as well, but um, I'm still here. Uh, that was my next question for you is you and your husband, you've talked about how your husband has changed. What about uh, the two of you and your health? Well, my husband, um, thank- thankfully, he's in remission with his bladder cancer, but he um, has uh, gastro I- issues. He also has... Um, intestinal issues Uh, we all suffer he has asthma which he never had before um i have two autoimmune illnesses that affected my thyroid um and uh, my lungs um between the both of us we have about 12 different illnesses and some days we're good um some days uh, many of us have developed uh, fibromyalgia which which is it's just a killer Mm -hmm. um there are days when I'm just absolutely okay, and then there are days when I cannot get out of bed because of the chronic pain. And I didn't have any of this before 2001, and neither did my. We were very healthy. Um, and now um, my husband has slowed down. He has stopped doing um, tours since before COVID. We both were petrified that if we got it, um, we wouldn't survive, and we lost several friends because of it. Um but um, I consider myself a perpetual volunteer. I didn't let COVID stop me. <laughs> and so I, I didn't. I, I, my uh, retirement group, the Green and White from EMS, um, they just decided to start cooking for um, the EMS stations. And all I know how to do that. And I did it from my tiny kitchen and I deliver the food. And, you know, that, that to me felt like I was still doing something, even though I couldn't be on the front lines anymore. Um, it's 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 changed our lives in that way. If you would have asked me 21 years ago that I would be doing this, I would have looked at you like, no, no, I don't know what I'll be doing, but this wouldn't be it. <laughs> and yet here we are. I'm I'm doing it, and I don't see myself ending it either. Right. And that's part of, I think, we said, you know, we'll always remember, we'll never forget. And it's important that we remember that day, but it's also important to remember people like you who have sacrificed so much, including your health and and ultimately probably your life. We need to make sure we're taking care of these people 21 years later. I've searched the internet today for places to donate to help 9-11 survivors, and there's lots and lots of places. Can you give us some of the better ones? Um, Well, I know Voices of 9-11, they have some really awesome um, programs there uh, for for all of us. Um, uh, If we need to talk to someone, they provide that. They have programs all the time about health care, what we should look out for. Um, You also have the John Field, the Feel Good Foundation. He's done such an amazing job. He he honors those of us um, that have died from one September to the next. He has a ceremony every year. But the money he collects goes to help um, other first responders that have been uh, that are sick 
that need help just to make ends meet, every year he collects gift cards so he can give it to those who have not been able to go shopping or to have a nice Christmas or a nice Thanksgiving. And this man was hurt on 9-11. Mm. Um, he helped us get the Memorial Glade put together along with John Stewart. Um, you also have, even even though Tribute um, officially closes their door tomorrow, we are going to continue with the educational program. We just have to, you know, a month or two from now. Um, and, and for us, it's the education that we want to give to children. And I, I do have faith that we will be back. I plan to continue doing tours on the memorial on my own accord. Um, but we have those programs are, is so, are so valuable. Um, and, and I wish they were you can't trust every program out there. But these two I know of, Tuesday's children also have done amazing work. Um, those are the three that I'm very familiar with. One thing that Bill told us is he wishes he could go back to September 12th and the unity we had that day, and I totally agree with that. Oh, I have a T-shirt that says, don't forget September 12th. Kindness <laughs> of strangers. It's, I have to tell you, I, I read a book the day the world came to town, and it was about Gander, Newfoundland. Uh, yes, I've read that book. That's so good. I went there. Ah. I read the book three times because I, I couldn't leave these people behind. And I went there for the 15th year of the attack just to say thank you. Oh. I couldn't believe that we were seeing the worst of humanity and these people were showing the best. Sonia, you did too, for sure. Thank you for what you've done for the last 21 years and for what you continue to do. It's important that we always remember, that we don't forget, and you telling your story helps us with that. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for giving me this time. I appreciate it. My next guest is Bill Romaka. He is the World Trade Center Health and Compensation Outreach Coordinator at Barash & McGarry, which is a law firm for the 9-11 community. He was previously vice president of the International Association of Firefighters and a New York City firefighter for over 25 years, including on the morning of September 11th. Bill, thanks for your time. Any problem, Mike. Today is 9-11. It's now been 21 years since those attacks on our country. Tell us your story, and I'm sure you've told this story thousands of times. We appreciate you telling it one more time. Well, my story is that I was firefighter back in Engine 238 in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, way back when. And what ended up happening was my sister-in-law called me that morning to tell me that Turned on the TV. I turned on the TV, in which case I saw what I thought was a terrorist attack. I called my wife at work, and I headed into the city to do what I could do to help. It was amazing that everybody pulled to the side of the road and let the responders get there, even if it was on the uh, shoulder of the road. I got to my firehouse probably somewhere a little before 11, and we ended up taking foam tender with everybody on it over to a, a place where everybody was getting their orders. We got our orders, and we went over the Brooklyn Bridge and got into World Trade Center area, probably somewhere about 1130-ish. And all I can remember is how, how cluttered everything was with all the dust and clouds from everything from the towers coming down. Our first assignment was, after the officer came back, was to go to uh, World Trade Center 7 and help with the evacuation. As we went to World Trade Center 7, there was another officer there that told us that we weren't allowed in there because it was compromised on the other side. But we knew it was compromised. We knew that people were being taken out of there already. So we went up down our business and found, ended up finding one of our guys from our firehouse because they were there at the site. We were trying to figure out how everybody was doing, making sure everybody was okay. 
Well, it turns out that everybody wasn't okay and that after the first tower came down, they got blown across the, um, the lobby of the, I think they were in the bank or whatever, or hotel, and against walls and stuff like that. My lieutenant was the first one up who said, he's from engine 238, follow me outside. And everybody followed him outside as well as some civilians to an area of safety. Once they got to that area of safety, he realized that one of his guys was missing. Hmm. He made sure everybody was staying there while he went to try to find the other guy. That's when the second tower came down, and that's when he got buried with all the debris and that in the second tower. Hmm. So on that day, when we finally found one of our guys, Stanley Trojanowski, he was the chauffeur that day. He was covered with the dust and everything like that because he survived both towers coming down in close proximity. Wow. So I wouldn't let him out of my sight the rest of the time. <laughs> and we ended up going over to, we saw one of our guys from the Marine unit who we knew. And he was trying to supply water to the pile, but we knew we had to set up a relay. And we went through and found about four or five engines before we found one that worked. We parked it behind another building so that the relay wouldn't get damaged when seven might come down later in the day. That's how cognizant we were of seven not being stabilized. Right. So then when seven came down later in the day, of course, more dust and everything was all over the place. And we ended up uh, meeting up with our truck company and going around to try to find our lieutenant. I had the chauffeur to be able to tell us where he was last seen. So we went around and got on the piles, despite the safeguards they put in place. And I remember looking to the sky and going, we're all going to be dead in 10 years. We've never been something like this. And we're not looking to recover anybody or to rescue anybody because... 110 stories never came down before, and it was very clumsy up there because everything was all over the place. Planes were flying overhead, and we were just hoping they were ours. Right. And so after after a while on that, they tried to order us off the pile because it was getting dark. They ordered us off the pile. We went into the hotel and stayed there, feeling defeated. And so one of my buddies came in and said that they found the 238 mask, and I said, that's my lieutenant. It was one of the dogs that found the body. We went out there, confirmed it was him, and we started digging whatever we could to get him out of there. And it wasn't until we got the help of the iron workers that we were able to actually cut the beam and move it off. There were three iron workers there who, for the most part, showed the greatest respect for our officer by covering his body when they were cutting and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. We also were with a bunch of guys from 176, Danny Murphy, who ended up in rescue. He was one of the guys leading it, Paulie Beta. I mean, the guys... In the truck, they, they were all there helping. Everybody was trying to do what they could to make to recover the body. Yeah. So was, you, you've been a, you've been a firefighter for years at this point, correct? At that point, I was a firefighter for 14 years. So you had been on many, many calls at that point. At what point that morning was it immediately apparent to you this is different than anything we've ever done, or, or when did that hit you? Well, no, when I saw it on TV, I think the first thing hit me was that this is a terrorist attack. It wasn't a small plane. You could tell by the size of the fire and stuff like that. So pretty much knew all along that it was. Hmm. And does, does that training that you've had for years and years kick in and you just go to work? Yes, because everybody was like on autopilot. Everybody was doing what they can. I mean, I was digging under the body. Uh, the radio pack fell apart in my hand and stuff like that. It was on top of a, it was, was a, a rim from a tire. So it was. We weren't going to get him to be able to drop down or anything like that. That's how come we needed the iron worker. Right. Wow. So when did you speak with your wife again to let her know that you were okay? Um, that came much later. 
frustrated okay. because we were so busy and no phones were working at the time. So from that day to today, 21 years, um, how has your life changed and, and what is it you're doing now? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I went to the International after, um, let's see, that was 2000. 12 to 2016, I was International Association of Firefighters Vice President for First District, meaning I represented all the firefighters in New York and New Jersey. There I made a lot of connections. And so once I stopped that, got defeated at that again, I ended up wanting to help people because I was on all the World Trade Center committees as the health and safety guy for the union. I wanted to use my knowledge to help people, and this law firm was able to give me a job where I could use my knowledge and help people. And have you suffered any health consequences from being there in the aftermath? No, I have bronchitis, acid reflux, sleep apnea, and you got to keep on going, get your skin checked, because skin cancer is the number one cancer we're seeing. i got another appointment for them next month. And, you know, go ahead. Like I said, I was even talking to a a Newark police officer today who, for the most part, they thought he had cancer. He was undergoing cancer treatment, chemotherapy, started losing his hair, and they found out, Oh wait, you didn't have cancer. Hmm. So these, these are the type of things I go I go through every day. Oh, dealing with people, and I really try to talk a lot of people off the edges because there's a lot of people with PTSD issues and stuff like that. I was trying. I was trying built to decide. I was trying to decide what I, questions I would ask you. And after googling some of the things, I I found a website that had children's questions for people that went through 9-11. I thought that was a really good place to start because children are pretty honest and pretty straightforward. So if it's all right with you, I'll just ask you these four questions that children have for 9-11 survivors. Uh, the first question is, do you ever go back to that day and wonder why it happened? Um, we generally go back there yearly. We go back there, it used to be August 11th. Now it's October 11th because most people go in different directions in the summer. But September 11th, generally, I spend out at the cemetery with my lieutenant's widow, giving respect to the family and to them. So it's like it, yeah, I mean, flashbacks. Mm-hmm. I, the first time I went into the 9-11 museum and they had a woman's shoe and it reminded me when I did a 30-day detail at Ground Zero, finding bone fragments in a shoe. So that was a trigger for me. I'm sure. The next question is, how do you ever stop thinking about it? Well, first of all, if you let it consume you, you can't do coulda, woulda, shoulda, because you're not going to be able to change anything. You have to compartmentalize it. In other words, put it over here for now, remember it when it's time to remember it, but don't always fixate on it. I think it was about uh, seven to nine months after 9-11 when I started remembering dreams again because Mm. I just shut them down completely. Wow. The next question is, how do you ever put this behind you? I don't think you can, can you? You can't put it behind you because it's part of our history now, too. I did go to a lot of funerals, wakes, and memorials. My wife did tell me at one point she was a single mother about nine months afterwards, and instead of getting mad, I said, no, I appreciate that. I Mm. appreciate that you were. allowed me to do what I thought I had to do. And then the last question that the kids had was, how did 9-11 change your perspective on the way you see people? No, I think that I don't think I'm 11 did it. I think I'm in New York City these days are doing it. No, but <laughs> I don't. I see people for who they are. I never prejudge people because I think that that's the biggest problem in the world. I think growing up, I, my kids were not allowed to use the way the word hate. Hmm. As I said, there was too much hate in the world. I said the only thing you could hate is vegetables. <laughs> I'm with you on that one, Bill. We said we would always remember, and I think that. 
I feel like we're starting to maybe not remember, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show today to tell your story so that we remember what happened, how horrific it was, how many people's lives are still affected to this day. What do you think most people like me, I was, you know, time zones away from New York on 9-11. What do most people that weren't there misunderstand the most about that day? About that day, well, one of the things I always tell people is I want to go back to September 12th. September 12th, everybody was on the same page. Everybody loved America. Everybody was helping each other. It was it was like a feeling that you never had before. In the meantime, 21, 21 years, somewhat later, we are more divided now than ever before, especially with politics and stuff like that, when really we have more in common than we have against each other. And I think that everybody has to stop prejudging things and start thinking for themselves. Absolutely. Bill, thank you so much for your time and for sharing this with us. I really, really appreciate it. Well, not a problem at all. I give reverence to all the guys who we lost on 9-11 and all the people that we lost after 9-11, too, because those numbers keep on happening. And that's how come I'm glad I'm in a position to keep on helping people. Thank you for listening to All Along the Wasatch with Mike Parsons. If you would like to submit a request to be a guest on the show, please email mparsons at ksl.com. That's mparsons at ksl.com.